on the Biota Podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. And if you're interested in participating in Biota Live, there is an active chat room which is currently full of, uh, it appears to be MSU grad students, uh, Michigan State University, who are here because they're Avita fans, but also obviously Tierra fans and waiting for Tom Ray with much excitement. I think this is the busiest chat room we've ever had on Biota Live, and we're waiting for Tom to call in. But it's wonderful to see so many people come out and uh, and support Tom's work, and I hopefully you folks will uh, stay around for future Biota Lives and get interested in other aspects of artificial life as well, uh, because it's wonderful to see so many people in the chat. But if you want the information on uh, how you can participate in Biota Live, Go to biota.org slash podcast. It'll give you the call-in details. And for the MSU folk in the chat, if the chat goes particularly crazy and you want to actually call in and talk, um, the details are via biota.org slash podcast. I believe also in the chat room you can see at the bottom the call-in details with regards to getting on this call this evening. Hello, Tom. Hello. Well, this evening's show is, is devoted to you and talking about 20 years of Tierra. Tom, this is your first appearance on Biota Live, and for folks listening in who, I don't know, have been living in a cave for the past 20 years and haven't heard about your work, can you describe your background and how you started developing Tierra? Well, I'm trained as an evolutionary biologist, and I had been working in tropical rainforests for I don't know how long, it, I guess at the time of Tierra, more than, a, more than a decade in the rainforest. And uh, the way Tierra developed was I was a graduate student in biology at Harvard, and uh, I hung around the Science Center because that's where they had the PDP computer where I did some work. And they had a little cafeteria there, and uh, one evening the Cambridge Go Club was meeting in the cafeteria, and there was a guy playing by himself, and I was curious, so I sat down and asked questions, and he was explaining the game of Go, and he was making some lifelike metaphors about the groups of pebble, uh, pebbles growing and dying. And it turns out he was a member of the MIT Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, and he said to me, did you know that it's possible to write a computer program that can self-replicate? That was a new idea to me. I'd never heard it before, so I was excited by it. And I said, well, how do you do it? And he said, it's trivial. 
And that was all I got out of him. Uh, but I was really excited by the idea because I imagined that if you tossed in a little mutation, you would have uh, evolution. And uh, I imagined a whole phylogeny of these things uh, evolving inside the computer. Well, I didn't know much about computer. I used the PDP and typed in the keyboard and looked at the screen, but I, I didn't understand how you could write a self-replicating computer program, and it took me 10 years to get the insight to, to do it. Uh, that happened, um, this, this meeting uh, with the fellow from the uh, Cambridge Go Club would have been in the late 70s. Then when the personal computer came out, and uh, I, I wasn't in the first wave of purchasers, but eventually I needed a computer uh, when I was working in the field in Costa Rica, so I bought a cheap uh, laptop computer. And I got the Borland debugger, and that was uh, my window into the machine because it would show the uh, code segment and the data segment and the CPU registers. And when I saw that, then I realized that uh, I could do it, or, or at least I could see the physical representation of the computer program, which I'd never seen before. I mean, the code segment, that, that was critical. And so I was so excited. Uh, you know, that idea that had uh, come to me 10 years before had just kind of, you know, had to sit in there frustrated, basically, <laughs> until, um, until I saw this uh, Borland debugger. And then you know, I really wanted to do it, but uh, by this time I was uh, approaching uh, uh, tenure uh, at the University of Delaware uh, on the strength of my work in tropical plant ecology. And I just knew, because the idea was so compelling, that if I was to allow myself to do this, I would fail to get tenure. It, it would just be a disaster. Um, so I, I, I didn't allow myself to do it. I, I stayed focused on my plant ecology. But I did uh, start communicating with people in the field. Um, I think that was in the era of news groups and I poked around and communicated a little bit. And somebody told me about this uh, first artificial life conference that had been organized by Chris Langton. And that sounded exactly right. So I, I went out and I ordered uh, the proceedings and just loved Chris Langton's introductory chapter. He really laid it out. That was exactly what it is that I wanted to do. And I had mixed feelings about that because, you know, I wanted to do it and here it was, you know, here was the book and here was the conceptual framework. But by the time I got, you know, to the end of Chris's introduction, I understood that it was at that stage of the game, it was more of uh, an idea and, and an objective than a reality. So there was still work to be done, and I uh, communicated with him, and uh, of course it was a new field, and so he was open to newcomers, and he arranged for me to come out to Los Alamos National Laboratory and meet with a group of people out there who were working on it, and that included Doan Farmer and Steen Rasmussen and uh, Stephanie Forrest and... Uh, I don't think Melanie Mitchell was there at the time, but you know it was a pretty core group of the original players in the field, and uh, there was about ten people sitting around the table in a discussion, and 
I was laying out the idea of working with machine code and, and mutating it to evolve it. Steen was really the only person who could buy that idea because he was working with a similar system at the time. I think he called it Venus. Uh, his he he was more interested in the in the issue of the origin of life. So he was stirring randomized soups of uh, machine code and trying to get self-replication to emerge. I wanted to start with replicators and just look at the evolution that could follow. Uh, but the rest of the group thought this was pretty hopeless, that you couldn't uh, mutate uh, machine code and expect to get anything but garbage out of it. And they raised the issue of brittleness, uh, which I hadn't thought about before, but it got me to thinking about it. And uh, so I, I, I compared the machine language to the genetic language. The genetic language could be looked at in a couple different ways. There are four bases that work in groups of three, so there are 64 codons, but it's a degenerate code. It translates into 20 amino acids, so the size of the, of the alphabet could be four or 64 or 20. Look at the machine code. It's a much larger alphabet, if, if alphabet is the right word, but the number of different instructions is larger in the sense that pri primarily because the, the actual core machine instructions tend to have uh, the operands embedded. So if you look in the code segment, you'll see some bits dedicated to determining what the operation is, and then some bits determined to uh, dedicated to determine uh, to pr provide space to uh, specify the the value that's being operated on, or it might specify a register address. But in any case, these uh, numeric operands or addresses are embedded right into the machine code, and they alone. Uh, make the size of the set astronomical. Um, you know, a single instruction might be 32 bits or, or more when you include the operands that follow the uh, specification of the operation. So, you know, not knowing whether it really mattered or not, I, th I thought the first thing to do was, was to reduce the size of the instruction set to something in the range of the biological number of 20 to 64. Uh, and just throwing out numeric operands was, was an easy way to do that. Uh, but then I needed to replace them with something. And um, basically, I had my machine instructions implicitly operate on values in the CPU register rather than values in the code segment. That, that's part of the solution. Uh, but then there's the issue of how do you control the jumps because uh, a jump a loop in the code uh, needs to specify where to jump to. Um, you know that could be done with the values in the register too. Uh, but I came up with the idea of patterns of no-ops. I, I had introduced two forms of no-op: no-op zero and no-op one. And uh, jump would be followed by, say, no op one, no op zero, 
and that would jump to the complementary pattern. One zero's complement would be zero one. So it would jump to the nearest instance of NOOP zero, NOOP one. So I made those innovations in response to the concerns that the group at Los Alamos expressed about brittleness. And, uh, you know, back to the tenure thing, I, I, I didn't allow myself to sit down and code because, uh, you know, probably a lot of you code and you know how absorbing that can be. I didn't allow myself to do that until I submitted my dossier for, for tenure and promotion. And probably the same day I sat down to code Tierra and, uh, didn't take long. Uh, within a couple of months, I think I think I submitted the dossier in October and had it running in by January 3rd. I mean, it was running and crashing by the end of December. Uh, but uh, you know, I created a virtual machine uh, with an operating system that managed a population of uh, of, of programs with each one ha with its own virtual CPU and memory allocation. I had to have a memory allocator. And uh, the idea of memory allocation was kind of an analogy or metaphor of the cell membrane. Um, the idea being that without having a, a membrane to protect the, the internal uh, domain of the, of the individual organism, they would just ride all over each other. It would just be uh, chaos of, of some sort, though it's possible it might have worked that way. But in, in any case, I started out with memory allocation as a as a kind of uh, uh, I called it a semi permeable membrane because in terms of read, write, and ex execute protection, uh, the membrane only provided write protection, so they were protected against other processes writing on their space but they weren't protected against other processes reading or executing their code, which turned out to be important in the end. So, um, so in October of uh, probably 90, I, uh, I started writing and it, uh, I have a note here as to when that actually started running. It was January 3rd of 1990. Okay, so I, I, I must've started writing in October of 89. And uh, what happened on January 3rd was that I guess that was when it first started running without crashing. You know, it, it was just a question of getting the bugs out to where it could run. And I was, I didn't, at that point, I didn't have any observational tools. I actually used the debugger itself as the observational tool. And so I could run it and I could run it in the debugger, I could step through it in the debugger, run it and stop it, and look at what was going on. And right away, I saw the emergence of these parasites uh, because the, the seed uh, organism was 80 bytes long, and these things that were 45 bytes long appeared. And by you know looking at what was going on in the debugger, I could tell that they were executing each other's code. So um, that was the beginning of the emergence of uh, ecological evolutionary dynamic, which was really 
you know, the key thing about Tira, that was what made it interesting and exciting. There was a period of evolution that occurred, uh, you know, running at the speeds I was at that time. It took a while to to learn that that was a transient phenomenon uh, that after some time would lead to a stasis where um, because I was giving equal time slices, which was sort of the energy metaphor to all of the uh, replicators in the population, there was a strong selection for optimization so that they can replicate with fewer CPU cycles. And over evolutionary time, the um, algorithms would get smaller and smaller. The replicators would get smaller and smaller until the original 80-byte replicator could shrink down to less than 20 bytes and still be fully replicating. And there, there was some limit on how small they could get. I think it was in the teens. But once they evolved to that point, there wasn't anything interesting going on anymore. Uh, they, they, would, they lost the ability to have ecological relationships before they completed the, the shrinkage of the genome. And then you would just end up with um, a population of sort of uh, basically neutral mutants on whatever was the smallest thing. And you wouldn't always end up with the same endpoint, but you would end up with an endpoint. Uh, some of the endpoints were, were interesting. Sometimes they had interesting optimizations, not just shrinkage of size, but they unrolled uh, a loop, which was a clever optimization. It was nice to see it emerge through uh, evolution. And actually, I'd never heard of that thing before since I didn't have much experience uh, programming at the machine code level. My training was in biology, not computer science. In terms of the experience uh, with regards to the Santa Fe Institute, were they running Core War? Was that something that you looked at early on or had a sense of? Or is that a community that you became acquainted with after creating Terra? No, I looked at that before Tierra. That was, uh, I, I think I had seen it in Scientific American somewhere along the line. And so when I was sort of in the period between seeing the Borland debugger and actually doing it, you know, I was looking around, I was reading. I just, I just didn't allow myself to code because I knew that I would get sucked into that. But, uh, you know, I certainly allowed myself to think and read and research and commun- communicate. And Core Wars had some relevance uh you know core wars didn't have the cell membrane and it was pretty brutal uh i guess that's was part of you know what led me to think cell membrane would be important and of course they weren't replicators in core wars either but you know it was certainly a related phenomenon and so i studied that and this was also something that I guess the folks at Santa Fe were building on. You mentioned Steen Rasmussen uh, developing a, a soup, uh, like I mean that was I'm assuming based in some regard on Cold War as well. Yeah, I don't remember whether Steen had looked at Cold Wars before developing his Venus model, but yeah, um, he, he probably did. Anyway, I interrupted you, so, so please continue with the, with the early history of Tierra. Well, I had paused actually to induce an interruption. Oh, uh, very good. <laughs> it, 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 you know, that that sort of represents a summary of the first phase of Tierra. 
And then I moved to ATR in, in Kyoto, Japan, where I got onto the second phase of Tira, which was, you know, recognizing that there was a stasis there and um, thinking about what was needed to move forward. Well, as a biologist, I was intrigued by the Cambrian explosion because uh, when you kind of look over the history of life on Earth, it was pretty boring before the Cambrian explosion. Just, you know, essentially Cambr the Cambrian explosion in, in a meaningful sense represents the transition from single cell to multicell. And out of multicellularity, almost everything, you know, macroscopically interesting in, in biology uh, emerges. So anatomy, physiology, uh, neuro, you know, the neurobiology, uh, even ecology and behavior, uh, not to mention aesthetic beauty, all of these things are post-Cambrian explosion phenomena. And, you know, what, what you had before that would be interesting to a microbiologist, but not so interesting to most people. So I, I figured there were some clues in there. And as I analyzed it, what it was really about was not so much the origin of multicellularity, which could simply be many cells of the same type stuck together into a blob, but more meaningfully the origin of differentiated multicellularity so that you had different cell types and different tissues specialized for different functions so you could get nerve cells and uh, heart cells and muscle cells and skin cells and so on. That was really uh, a key aspect of the emergence of complexity that came out of the Cambrian explosion. So I wanted to basically model that in the same way that I had modeled sort of the origin of evolution. See, Steen was interested in the origin of life itself. So the origin of replication was, was what he was targeting. In the original Tira, I was targeting the origin of evolution by starting with a replicator, seeding it with a replicator. Well, in the same spirit, I didn't want to get multicellularity to spontaneously emerge out of Tira. That would be like getting replication to spontaneously emerge out of steam soup. What I wanted to do was seed it with the most primitively differentiated uh, form possible, which would be two cell types, and uh, see what happened from there. Well, so what is the metaphor, what is the analogy? Uh, I figured it had uh, a metaphor with parallel processing, and so I was real interested at that during that period in parallel machines, and ATR tried to, to have at least one of each of them. So we had quite an interesting collection of uh, parallel machines there uh, to play with. And uh, Kurt uh, Thierling from Thinking Machines uh, came to work with me. Thinking Machines sent him and we got it running on the, the CM5. Um, but the real metaphor and, and, and the key thing was that the we seed it with something that can start with a single CPU, but we have now introduced to the instruction set a split instruction that allows a single CPU to split into two CPUs 
they can share the same code. So we would have a single genome, but we could have multiple CPUs um, executing them. And uh, it's, it's code, so we can think of, or in fact, there exist different functions in this code, uh, subroutines that call each other. And so uh, at some point, these two CPUs would come to an if statement where they would jump to different locations in the code, and they would then be differentiated. They would be executing different parts of the code. Uh, to me, this was a metaphor of, of gene expression. So executing different parts of the code is the same as expressing different genes. So our, our body contains uh, tens of thousands of genes, but a specific cell doesn't express all 10,000 genes. It expresses a subset characteristic of its cell type or tissue type. So this was the biological idea that I was developing. And I figured that the simple soup that uh, original tier ran in, which was a 60,000 byte soup that held about 300 of these 80 byte creatures and their daughters, that that environment probably didn't have enough complexity to favor a more complex organism. Well, this would have been in, in the mid-90s, and uh, you know the network was, was sort of coming into its own. And so I, was, I, I got the idea of uh, having this as a distributed system uh, on the net, sort of SETI style, that uh, TIER could run as a background process on many machines and the uh, digital organisms would have the freedom to migrate between machines. And I imagined them foraging on the network for uh, CPU cycles and uh, memory space, space to live in and cycles as energy. And I could uh, envision them uh, migrating around the planet on a daily basis, uh, staying on the dark side of the planet where there are more free CPU cycles, uh, imagining that in the day this the CPU cycles would be occupied by their human users and the machines would be more idle at night. And that was the kind of thing I envisioned. I also envisioned a, a fairly large region of cyberspace that could have a, a complex topology uh, of its own that these uh, digital organisms would need to navigate. So it was uh, the idea was both to challenge them with a more a richer, more complex environment, and to seed the system with primitively differentiated uh, digital organisms and see what happens, similar to the original Terra experiment, just on a, a different level. So I designed a, a new ancestor that had two uh, tissue types. One of them was basically the original algorithm, which is a replicator. Uh, the other tissue type it was a, a, of a sensory nature and what it did was to ping other machines and we created a special uh, Tierra ping algorithm where um, they're provided with a list of IP addresses of the machines participating in the experiment and they're able to go down that list and ping machines on the list and when the ping comes back it brings some information about the state of that machine. So it, it 
that information contains includes um, the the size of the memory allocated by the tier process. So that's how much memory space is available on that machine. Uh, it includes uh, an index of the speed that that Tira process is running. So how, how fast is it executing Tira instructions? That's a measure of the energy level. And there was a bunch of stuff that we threw in there just to make available. I think it uh, included the, the number of uh, Tiran organisms on that machine, and I, I don't remember all the other stuff that was in there. So they could get this information, and the seed algorithm would get some of these. It would get maybe eight of these and do a, a sort of a, a series of binary pairwise comparisons and end up with the most attractive machine out of the eight based on, I think it divided the number of organisms into the speed at, at which Tiran instructions are being executed. So it was, it was searching for the best allocation of cycles per creature on, on the machines that it's looked at. And uh, this all was in a loop, so you know it would it would do that analysis. It would pass this information to the replicator. So when the daughter was born, it could be sent off uh, to that machine, uh, the best-looking machine, and then it could produce another daughter while it's looking at other machines. And it would always choose the best machine out of all of those that it had seen. Well. Um, we got a number of institutions around the world interested in this idea, and uh, they allowed us to run the process on their machines. And it turned out to completely consume their bandwidth, which got a lot of people pissed off. Um, you know, some institutions had trouble communicating when it when it ran. Others got bills for the bandwidth, which was very unfortunate. So we decided that that wasn't a good idea to try to run it on a global scale, which is what we had done. Um, and we pulled back into the institution of ATR, and we were able to get over 100 machines in-house uh, to run it on uh, round the clock. And uh, so that was a, a compromise, but it was something that didn't, get people pissed off and um, the results have, have been interesting but the analysis is, is unfinished actually um, it's not easy to to analyze machine code anybody who's who's worked with uh, a, a version of Tira or derivative knows that it's hard enough to read machine code that a human wrote but when evolution has had a hand in it, it's all the more difficult. But now we're not just talking about regular machine code, but multi-threaded or parallel machine code written or altered by evolution. This is really difficult. And um, Joe Hart and I and, and uh, my assistant, Chen Mei Shi, have developed a, a number of tools that um, allow us to examine the structure of these organisms. Uh, some very nice tools examine the differentiated, 
differentiation pattern of the organism as a as a tree-like structure. It, it's complicated. Um, part of the problem is that I moved on to something else. I, I don't do this kind of work anymore, and so it remains unfinished. But I can say that uh, that experiment produced what I was looking for to some degree, which was uh, the origin of new tissue types and uh, even new genes, which I was something I wasn't uh, specifically looking for, but it, it's part of the package. Um, some of the um, there, there was a there was a little piece of code that copies data, copies a block of data from one location to another that was called by both tissues. So the replication code uses it to um, copy the genome from mother to daughter. Uh, the sensory code uses it, I guess, for the T-ping data to keep the best-looking T-ping data in, in a certain location. But these, uh, these applications of that algorithm are different in magnitude. The, the replication of the genome involves copying a lot of data, and the replication of the T-ping involves copying a little bit of data. So one of the things that happened was that that piece of code was duplicated, and then the different tissues used different copies, and then they evolved to be different, you know, quite different. Uh, so it was it was an example of the origin of a new gene through duplication and divergence. And uh, we also got, um, you know, the key the key thing really was new tissue types. So it, it was um, groups of CPUs that executed different subsets of uh, the genome. So I, I don't really know how far it went. I, I published some papers illustrating these results, but we have a large ar archive of data which is only partially analyzed, and that's kind of where it stands today. And did Joseph Hart continue to do this work? Was there uh, a few people that were left in Japan to continue this work? Uh, Joe's still there. He's probably listening. And um, he uh, does continue to work with Tira. He, it's not his job to work with Tira. Uh, so he's uh, spare time working with Tira. Uh, he you know, has some ideas of his own and uh, does some experiments, uh, adds uh, features to Tira, tries things. Uh, I do have two graduate students working in this area, though. Um, uh, Jia Xiao is working with Tira, and she's, like many people in artificial life, interested in the big question of how does evolution generate uh, increases in complexity? And what she's doing is uh, using predation to introduce an evolutionary ecological dynamic into Tira. And uh, she's uh, sort of at the stage now, well, she she had to alter the instruction set to essentially allow the act of predation, which in her case means taking CPU cycles away from another organism, a little bit like the hyperparasites that had emerged spontaneously. 
um, but this more by design. And so she seeds Kira with some individuals designed as predators and some individuals which are just regular Kira replicators, which we can call prey. And she's at the stage of figuring out with evolution turned off, how to get ecological stability in that system. And she's she's just completed that phase of the work. And so she's ready now, uh, you know, in the coming uh, near future to, to be able to turn on evolution and see what happens to an evolving system like this. So, you know, she's betting on the evolutionary ecological dynamic as as a method of getting increase in complexity. My other uh, uh, and uh, Gia is a PhD student. Uh, my master's student Esther Lowe is yes, not really Tira, but um, it's kind of my next idea along along the lines of doing a thing like Tira. My my current research is in neuroscience and. I, I study neuromodulation, neuromodulatory receptor systems, and I'm understanding their role in at the level of mind. Uh, but in in learning about neuromodulation, I, I appreciated that in computer science, where we do uh, let's just say neural nets, uh, the phenomenon of neuromodulation hasn't been very well embraced, recognized, but it seems to be overwhelmingly important in in uh, complex brains. So I think that's an unfortunate situation for computational models of neural function that they tend to leave this critical phenomenon of neuromodulation out. So uh, my sort of next Tira-like idea, well, I, I could characterize Tira as transferring the phenomenon or process of evolution from the organic to the digital medium. So then the next Tira-like idea is to transfer the phenomenon or process of neuromodulation from the organic to the digital medium. Well, this is what Esther Lowe is working on Though, as a master's student, the goal isn't implementation, but conceptualization. So she's uh, done a literature review, both of the biological literature on neuromodulation and the little bit of neuromodulation that has been introduced into uh, computer science, review that literature, and then with a, with a broader view than the state of the art in computer science, talk about how to introduce neuromodulation into the digital medium. Um, you know, I would say that the people who've done it in computer science looks like they never did a full review of the phenomenon of neuromodulation. Rather, what happened was they heard about a specific kind of neuromodulation, like uh, NO, the nitric oxide which is a gaseous neuromodulator, and then they would implement a model of that specific form of neuromodulation. But there doesn't appear to, to be any, anyone who's broadly thought about neuromodulation and how 
it can be uh, transferred to the to the organic uh, digital medium. So that's what Esther is doing. And as I say, it's at the level of conceptualization, though she's going to go into some specific, you know, describe some specific ways of implementing it in uh, digital systems, but though she's not going to build those systems. Could you give a, a single paragraph definition for neural modulation for folks listening in? Well, <clears throat> we can think of the information in, in the brain as flowing through uh, ion channels, which are fast pathways. And there are excitatory receptors and inhibitory receptors, or ne excitatory neurotransmitters and inhibitory neurotransmitters. And you know, one could think that that would be enough to build a brain with. But these basically two forms of ion channel neurotransmission, the excitatory and the inhibitory, which is what all basically all neural networks are designed around that. Uh, these two forms are surrounded by over 300 modulatory uh, receptor types which alter the properties of the ion channels and, and the behavior of neurons in very subtle ways. So, for example, if you have a neuron that has the characteristic of firing in bursts, you know, it doesn't have to fire in bursts. That's just one way that it can fire. But if you have a neuron that's firing that way, that's its char character, a neuromodulator could alter that character so that it doesn't fire in bursts. It, it may fire in a more steady pattern rather than in a bursting pattern. So, you know, at, at the neuro neuronal level, that's what neuromodulators are doing. My research is at the level of the mind itself. So at, at that level, um, what neuromodulators are doing is they, uh, the neuromodulators are implemented through receptors. There's a large family of receptors called the G-protein coupled receptors which includes the odor receptors, but in humans there are about 300 different types of odor receptors and about 300 different types of neurotransmitter receptors in this family. Well, each one of these neurotransmitter receptors implements what I call a, 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 a mental organ. And uh, it's defined as the population of cells bearing that specific kind of receptor. So serotonin 2A is a specific kind of receptor. So all cells that bear that receptor would be a mental organ. And different mental organs mediate non-overlapping domains of human experience. So for example, happiness and joy, um, and compassion and forgiveness, um, logic and reason, consciousness itself, uh, the sense of self. These are different domains of human experience which are mediated by different mental organs which are defined by different modulatory receptors. So, you know, I've talked about it at the level of the neuron changing the character of the behavior of the neuron and, and now I'm talking about it at the level of the mind. So in terms of a, a Tierra-like model for this, is the idea to make it multidimensional or would it still be relatively linear in terms of modeling this, this kind of uh, behavior? 
I don't understand the question. So I'm interested, as you're moving into this new form of simulation, is the is the actual physical locations, the contacts between the neurons in a kind of three-dimensional form going to be an important component? Or as you have taken Tierra, is it going to be a more abstract model that is less representative of the physical? Well, I probably can't answer that question because I'm not, I'm not myself involved in that work. As I said, Esther Lowe is doing a conceptualization of it. What, what I what I want ultimately for Esther to do is to publish uh, a review of neuromodulation for computer scientists working with you know, models of neural systems uh, to lay out the nature of modulation, the different forms of neuromodulation, and give some examples of how these different forms of neuromodulation could be implemented in, in conventional uh, uh, neural networks, for example. I'm not doing that. Um, I'm working, you know, I'm, I'm wet now. I'm, I'm not doing anything myself in the digital domain. It just happens that my two graduate students are both working in that area because I haven't established myself. I haven't published anything in the new area. Uh, era, uh, area. <laughs> Excuse me. I just had my first uh, paper in that area, um, accepted uh, contingent on revision today. So uh, the work is just about uh, to begin coming out. And nobody knows I'm doing it. So of course, I don't attract students in this area. Uh, my students are, are attracted by my, my previous work. So I, I can't really answer that question. It's, you know, it's, the idea came to me as as another chair-like thing that I could do. But I I wasn't as excited about it as I was the original tier, and I don't know that I'll ever get around to actually doing it, but at, at this point, I'm too involved in the wet work and getting it out to contemplate actually getting involved in that the digital transfer. You know, once that work is done and it's out, you know, then I'll be in the position to think about, do I really want to go ahead and, and do uh, the digital transfer in, in this uh, domain? I don't know yet. Yes, it's an interesting time for artificial life currently because I'm not sure if you followed Larry Yeager's recent development with Polyworld, but he's opened up various components. So, for example, I put my Nobel Ape cognitive simulation in Polyworld and taken out his uh, sea creatures uh, cognitive simulation and put it in Nobel Ape. And there are a number of these kind of projects that are going on currently with the kind of artificial intelligence and a simulated environment version of artificial life. And it interests me that this is really a period where uh, a number of the kind of artificial life simulators, Crititing is a, another one, which is a new one based on uh, Polyworld in some regard, but with a heavy kind of neural network component at its core, seem to be exchanging neural networks and exchanging broader ideas to kind of competitively hybridize what's come through artificial life or this particular area of artificial life. So you're talking about this at a, at a wonderful time for the artificial life community because these are the kind of simulations in terms of a, a drag and drop view of consciousness where you can put them into into various pre-existing simulations. Um, so, I mean, certainly uh, motivate your, your master's student to investigate these areas as well because super intelligent sea creatures, for example, uh, would be wonderful to see with the kind of uh, uh, neural network descriptions that you're offering. But I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Avida and how Avida fits in with Tierra and whether 
you know, whether you see uh, folks maturing of, of EDA uh, in directions that you're talking about in terms of how you would have liked to have taken Tierra in the future, and just a kind of broader narrative about the linking of the two programs. Well, I, I think it's great stuff uh, what they're doing. Um, although I don't work in this area, I still get uh, papers to review. I, I review quite a lot of papers in artificial life, uh, both for conferences and um, and journals. And so I see some of what's going on uh, for that reason. And uh, I, I know that the, the people working on, on Avita are really good people uh, trying to solve the hard problems. And you know more power to them. I uh, I don't think anybody has really had the success. You know the the ultimate goal of creating a system that spontaneously shows large increases in complexity. I think that's what a lot of people are are working towards. I mean not not everybody because some people are more interested in say computational intelligence than this kind of evolutionary complexity. But um, I, I guess the Avita group is. And, and has similar goals to what uh, what I was working towards and what uh, my student Jia Shen was working towards. So I'm only marginally uh, up on what they're doing, but I, you know, definitely feel uh, that they're continuing to try to do the, the kinds of things that I was trying to do. And so I'm happy. In fact, as one of the reasons I was able to walk away from Tierra was because. You know, walking away from it didn't kill it. Uh, other people are, are working on derivatives of it, and so it, it continues to live even without me being involved in it. And in terms of, I mean, we've talked up until now about 20 years of Tierra and kind of your future work, but in terms of the artificial life community, obviously you've, you've been a part of the artificial life community for for 20 years or so. Would you like to give a description of the kind of ebbs and flows that you've seen in the community as a whole and what you think will, will come into the community in the future? Well, I guess um, I think many of us, uh, I recall having to explain this to Jia Xiao's thesis committee, which were which are zoologists who don't work in the field of artificial life, um, for the most part, that it's kind of a rite of passage in the field to attempt to create a system that shows open-ended evolution with uh, significant increases in complexity, seemingly able to continue as organic life has done. So it's a rite of passage to attempt to do this and to fail. And you know, my, my goal was to convince her committee that it's okay for her to fail because that's what we all do in the field. And, and I guess that's you know, how I see it, is, is that you know, we, at least for the part of the field that has this particular goal of, of open-ended evolution, I'm not aware of anybody having achieved it. You know, we, we do things that, you know, by comparing with and without this thing, we can show that evolution is better with this thing than without it. And, you know, it's a little bit like genetic algorithms and evolu evolutionary computation field, you know, trying all different things to in improve the evolutionary process. But, you know, outright open-ended evolution, I don't think anybody has, has got it or, or anywhere near it. You know, Tira looked promising for a transient 
period. And, and I guess many systems have that quality. But the, the big goal uh, seems to remain elusive. And I suppose you know, that may be one of the reasons why I moved on. Um, you know, I didn't want to spend the rest of my career beating my head against the wall uh, when I had another compelling idea that I wanted to work on. But I mean, certainly emerging consciousness from simulated, you know, simulated agents, I would consider part of the contemporary artificial life community, and this seems to be what you're describing as well. I mean, do you see the artificial life community in terms of definition spreading uh, a great deal from, you know, the late 80s when you first entered the artificial life community? Or do you see it really, as Mark Badeau does, as a kind of continuation of, of Chris Langton's original definition of life as it could be? Well, I'm not going to be in in quite the position that Badeau is to to comment on the state of the field, because apart from the reviewing that I do, I'm not watching it. Uh, I was, um, I guess, in April. Uh, I went to an artificial life uh, session. Um, Christopher Nahanov invited me to speak on uh, evolvability, and I said, well, I would just make a fool of myself if I got up there and spoke on it because I haven't thought about it in years. I, I don't keep up with the literature, and he kindly allowed me to just speak on my latest research. It was very well received, and I, I did have um, a message for the community, which was... Uh, sort of the good news and the bad news of what I'd learned about uh, the mind. This this was in a IEEE meeting on computational intelligence, and it was a session on artificial life within that larger meeting. So my message was for the you know for that part of artificial life that's interested in in intelligence and its emergence. Um, what I've learned studying the human mind is that it has a major division between two domains. There's what I call the cognitive domain, which is logic and reason. And then there's the effective domain, which is kind of emotions and feelings. And the cognitive domain is the is the newer domain, the more recently evolved domain. It's maybe uh, uniquely human, but it's built on top of an, an ancient and actually m more complex effective domain, which is the core of our being. And we're really nothing without it. And I, so uh, the bad news part of it is that I, I think that most of the computational work on intelligence is limited to attempting to emulate the cognitive domain. And I think that's never going to get us to where we would like to be because it leaves out the effective domain, which is really the core of our being. Um, the good news part of it is that what my work is showing is that the, the whole thing, including the effective domain, is not a, an amorphous mishmash. It's, it's broken down into hundreds of components, specific components with specific underlying neural structures. So I can identify 
the component that's responsible for happiness and joy. And I can identify the component that's responsible for compassion. And I can identify the component that's responsible for consciousness itself, which actually was counterintuitive to me because I'd always assumed that uh, consciousness itself was just kind of emerged from the collective whole. But I've found an organ of consciousness and you know that's kind of a new idea. But um, my point is that the good news is that there are specific neural structures for these specific functions, including the effective domain, which is what I think the computational approaches have left out uh, to this point. So I don't think they're intractable as one might think if, if, if one didn't know about the structure of the mind, which is what my research is, is revealing. So um, for those interested in uh, intelligence in the artificial domain, you know, I, I would recommend learning about the effective domain because it's, it's really, you know, it's the larger part of the mind and it's the core of the mind on which the cognitive layer is is uh, built. And uh, Antonio Damasio argues in Descartes' error that we can't even reason without it, that it's it plays a critical role in all reasoning and decision-making processes. And it's probably he's probably right about that. So, you know, I, I don't think artificial implementations of intelligence are going to get very far until they get real about the larger structure of the mind. It's not just cognitive, you know. I mean, you know, we have all these departments of cognitive science or cognitive computational whatever. You know, cognition is in the name of the department and, and you know, they're trying to create intelligence and mind and, and the machine and they're leaving out the bulk of, of the mind. And uh, and I think that's a mistake. Certainly, certainly. Because our chat room seems to be largely filled with graduate students this evening, as they uh, you know start to think about a possible career developing artificial life. I was looking through your list of funders on your website um, as part of your curriculum uh, vitae, and this amazing uh, list of, of potential funders for future artificial life research from there. For someone who would be looking for folks like Brick Kleiss and the Grateful Dead as well as Sun Microsystems and Digital Equipment Corporation, IBM, I mean in terms of your, your funders and the way that you've talked about artificial life and ways that would appeal to them, can you give some kind of overview about how to create artificial life which is immediately fundable? Well, I was lucky. Uh because uh, I got a lot of publicity. And in the 90s, I gave over 200 invited lectures as a result. And I went to all the major computer companies and uh, a lot of them gave me money. Uh, that said, um, for people who are trying to survive in academics, it's a miracle I survived on as little funding as I got. Um, you know, most of the funding that I got didn't provide overhead, which is what the institution really cares about. Um, you know, I had, you know, there's one or two overhead-bearing grants in, in my entire career. 
and you know that's not good um i i survived in in part because of the publicity surrounding my work and that's not going to cut it for most people trying to make it in academics so i i don't have a good funding record frankly and it's just a miracle that i made it uh to the level of full professor with my funding record i would you know i would have trouble making it you know anybody with my funding record is would likely to be denied tenure actually and in kind of broader terms, I mean, you say that you're, you no longer feel really as a member of the artificial life community, although you, you still do peer-review-related reading. But for recent graduates or folks listening in this evening who are thinking about taking artificial life in their own particular directions, do you have any advice to them? Any what advice, you say? Yes. Well, um the advice that I would offer was what I tried to express in my paper, uh, something about Zen and the art of creating life, which is when you transfer something from the organic to the digital medium, don't be a slave to the organic form. Um, be true to the process. So be true to the process of ev evolution or be true to the process of you know whatever's going on in in neural systems but if you if you're a slave to vividly representing the digital system in the organic system to my mind that's not really artificial life that's a model and i don't think that's what artificial life is supposed to be about so what i tried to do in the original tiara and what i would do if i was to move uh, neuromodulation over would be to really think about the, the medium into which I'm inoculating this process, be it evolution, be it neuromodulation, and think about the essence of the process, the, the, the abstraction of the process, the nature of the medium, and how best to, to put the process into the medium in a way that's natural to the medium. Don't be too tied to the way that process manifests in the organic medium because the organic medium and the digital medium are radically different mediums. And the same process is going to look very different in the different mediums. And, and if you elaborately represent the organic thing in the digital medium, then what you've got is a model. And and again, I don't consider that to be artificial life, and I don't think it's very interesting, really. Well, Tom, I'd like to thank you for your time, for appearing on, on BioLive, and please do not be a stranger. Uh, we've had uh, a number of guests that have appeared in the past with the view that they would have an interview and a chat and the kind of thing that you've done this evening, and they do occasionally reappear for general discussions. Have you been following Bruce Stamer's work with the EvoGrid at all? Uh, yeah, he uh, visited me recently, and uh, we talked about it, so I'm kind of up on what he's doing. Terrific. So maybe we could invite you back for a future EvoGrid-related discussion to uh, to reinforce what you just said with regards to artificial life and, and real life. Okay. Terrific. 
Well, our next show will be October 30th at 8 p.m. Pacific, where we will have Mark Badeau on. Mark will be talking about artificial life in industry and academia and the plans for the International Society of Artificial Life with regards to these two components, and maybe even something to do with a hobbyist as well. So the next show, October 30th at 8 p.m. Pacific, Mark Badeau. Thanks once again to Tom for calling in this evening, and thanks for folks for listening in.